Well, church, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and as you're uh, finding your way there, I do want to uh, thank my brother Wallace Kelly for uh, bringing God's message last week. I was, uh, wasn't, of course, wasn't here, but was able to watch online, and I was certainly blessed by that, and I trust you were blessed as well. I even enjoyed uh, the extensive humor at my, own, my sake, uh, um, so I appreciate that. I think there was some reference to a physical re resemblance between me and uh, John the Baptist, which is somewhat appropriate for this Sunday's sermon, because uh, this will be a very John the Baptist-like message this morning. Maybe not as much yelling as he might have done, left the camel's hair at home, uh, but it certainly will be a message about sin and the need of repentance, indeed the need of church discipline. And that's going to be the topic of our passage this morning. It's one of the two kind of main passages in the Bible on church discipline, the other being, of course, Matthew 18. I do want to let you know the reason that I'm preaching this morning on church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5 is not because we have some pending case of church discipline, so please rest at ease. I do think this is important for us to know, and I happened to preach this when I was on mission in Central Asia in November. I was tasked with this, uh, preaching this chapter, so I wrote that sermon, and I just had it sitting there, and I figure I might as well use it on you as well. And so, uh, so we find ourselves here in 1 Corinthians 5. I do want to uh, give you just a, a bit of uh, forewarning. It is a difficult passage. The topic is difficult. And indeed, some of the verses are difficult to understand, and so we'll do the best that we can. Um, I did mention, I, I preached this in Central Asia. I, I mentioned that as a segue, just to let you know, we are going to have um, our missionary partner from Central Asia will be here on August 7th. And so we're delighted uh, for him and, and him, her and their children to be with us. And then uh, the elders are recommending to the church that we enter into another missionary partner uh, partnership with another man who is headed to Central Asia. And uh, both... Both those missionaries will be here on August 7th and just uh, two weeks from today, and I trust that will be a delight for us and be encouraged by them. They'll be teaching some of our Sunday school classes and uh, speaking in our service, and I'm very much looking forward uh, to that. And uh, this is also a good segue uh, to let you know that uh, one of our members, uh, Anastasia Karn, will be headed to Central Asia uh, coming in early September. She'll be there for four months, and uh, that, uh, my sweet daughter um, is excited about that work. And she's going to be um, speaking about her work later on in the month of August. So many wonderful things are happening in this church uh, for which we should be encouraged. And so uh, here we find ourselves in 1 Corinthians 5. I trust God will bless us uh, through his word this morning as I invite you to hear now the word of God. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Father in heaven, um, even as we read this text, we recognize the challenge that it presents to us. And so we find ourselves, as we do every Sunday, I think, in desperate need for you to come and to work, both in the message that is delivered 
and the manner in which it is received. So may your spirit rest upon both preacher and listener this morning. And that you would help us to understand what you ask of your church. We want ultimately to submit ourselves to you as instructed by your word. We do not want to be a church that is led simply by our own ideas and our own preferences. And so where your truth contradicts our instincts, may we bow in submission and say that God's ways are always good. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I know Wallace tasked me last week to find a story uh, pertaining to the sermon from 1836, I believe it was. Uh, I, I attempted, I'm afraid I failed. Uh, but how about 136? The year 136, there existed a Greek philosopher named Aristides. Aristides the Athenian, who became a Christian. He wrote a very famous letter called the Apology of Aristides. It's famous because it's a letter that describes the Christian church in its very earliest days. So what were Christians like within 100 years of the church forming? Well, Aristides tells us, the Christians persuade others to become Christians by the love that they have for them. And when they become so, they call them without distinction, brothers. They walk in all humility and kindness and there is among them, and if there is among them a man that is poor and needy, they fast two or three days so that they may supply the needy with necessary food. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly as, their Lord, as the Lord their God commanded them. They praise God, and over their food and drink, they render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God, and they speak of his body as though he were moving from one place to another. Such is the law of the Christians, and such is their conduct. A contemporary of Aristides was a man named Diognesus, who also wrote in the 130s, defending Christianity, saying, we share our table with all, but not our bed with all. In other words, the Christians were quite unlike the Roman culture, very liberal when it come to, came to their money, very conservative when it came to their sexuality. And it is these ideas, these, the, the ideas that brought about this transformed life that begin to stand out in the Roman world. As you know, the Roman world was one to Christianity, not because of simply Christian truth, but how that Christian truth transformed the Christians' lives. Their lives, as Paul would say, ordained the gospel. It made the message of Jesus Christ compelling and interesting. But that's not always the case, as you know. Sometimes Christians can do the exact opposite. Rather than adorn the gospel, we can bring disgrace upon it. That seems to be happening here in Corinth, doesn't it? As you see in verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. You see, Paul says there's sexual morality in this church in Corinth. Um, it's interesting to know that in Corinth, sexual immorality was pretty common. Uh, it was an ancient port city famous for its temples. Much of the temples, uh, temple worship involved cult prostitution. Uh, Homer in his Iliad uh, would make reference to the immorality of the Corinthians. Uh, Plato would coin a phrase, the Corinthian girl, which is just shorthand for prostitute. Um, this was a city... Uh, back in, in the ancient days of mass gender confusion, rampant homosexuality, and sexual immorality um, was commonplace. So much so that they didn't even notice it. Kind of like America. <laughs> I mean, just watch a commercial today. Try to get through three without finding sexual content. Right? Watch a movie, and five minutes into it, there will be some sexual um, uh, implications in that movie. Our, our society, the, the world in which we live in, says sex is no big deal. We have become desensitized to it. And, and so it's very similar to ancient Corinth. They also, like modern America, were not bothered by sexual immorality. But you notice what Paul says here in verse 1, 
that there is sexual immorality happening in the church that even the Corinthians thought was inappropriate. This is a type of sexual immorality that's happening amongst you that even the pagans will not tolerate, Paul tells us here in verse 1. And so if the world looks at the church and says, you guys are gross, right? You guys are doing some nasty stuff over there. That's actually saying something, isn't it? And therefore, what Paul is doing here in this passage, as we'll see, is he's calling for the church to act. You say, what act? They are to discipline this man in sin. We'll see this. Paul will command them to do this four times. Verse 2, he'll say, remove him from among you. Verse 5, deliver him over to Satan. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Uh, and verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. This is what uh, we have called historically uh, church discipline. Now, I do recognize even in bringing this topic up, we, we have today an allergy to discipline. We believe in disciplining ourselves. We're okay with self-discipline. Um, but we, we, we don't like it when people tell us what to do. Like we, we, who are you to tell me how to live, right? And we reject, and, I, and this is not just out there. This is in the church. And I, I, I trust it's in this church. We reject the idea that there is any authority over me other than myself. That no one should be in a position of authority. We have embraced rampant individualism. We have embraced unfettered uh, freedom. We are an island unto ourselves. I think Jonathan Lehman is right when he writes, for the average person in Western culture today, every attachment is negotiable. We are all free agents. And every relationship is a contract that can be renegotiated or canceled, whether we are dealing with the prince, the parents, the spouse, the salesman, the boss, or, of course, the local church. I am principally, he says, obligated to myself. In other words, we live in a day, we swim in the, the stream that tells us only what you think about you is important. Don't let anybody else tell you what to think about you. What you think about you is all that matters. Perhaps you've heard the limerick, when you get what you want in your struggle for self and the world makes you a king for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what that man has to say. For it isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgment upon you must pass. The fellow whose verdict counts most in your life is the one staring back from the glass. What do you think? Does that ring true to you? I don't care what you all think about me. What matters most is what I think about me. Is that accurate? Is that biblical, we might ask? I think that's an interesting question. I'm not sure we could answer it right off the top of our head. And so I think this might be helpful for us as we think about how we hold each other accountable in the church. You see, this unfettered freedom has been extended to the church. This individualism is extended even into our relationships with the church. And we now say, do we not, that the church shouldn't be a place of accountability and discipline. The church is simply a place of love and acceptance. This is not what we think. We, we should be bringing, pastor, we should be bringing people in, not throwing people out. Isn't the church the hospital for the sick? Why in the world would we find a sick patient in the hospital and kick him out? I even had well-meaning people within this church who have said we should receive anyone into membership in this church regardless of how they live or regardless of what they believe. We should just be bringing everyone in who wants to join. What do you think? Is that true? I wonder how we would deal with what Paul says here in verse 3 then. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Right? That seems awfully out of place, doesn't it? Paul announcing, I am making a moral judgment. And that he will see you, church, should make a moral judgment upon this person as well on your wayward members. So let's consider what church discipline is this morning. We'll do so in three uh, uh, steps, if you will. All from 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, the command to discipline, we just want to see that it is commanded to us in the Bible. Secondly, the process of church discipline. How do we do it? What is it we're actually doing? And then thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the purpose of church discipline. Why is this commanded to us in Scripture? What are we hoping to accomplish through it? 
And so we begin by the command of church discipline. I refer you back to verse 1, if that's okay. It says, it is actually reported uh, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Note a few words in that verse. He says, it's actually reported. The word is out. Paul is hundreds of miles away, by the way. Uh, by the way, and uh, he, he's got word of this. He didn't find, it wasn't a tweet, right? He, there's no internet. And somehow, hundreds of miles away, this is being said. That's how prominent this sin is in this church. It is spreading wide over the Roman Empire. We note the, the exact nature of the sin in, in seeing that he has his father's uh, wife. And so we are safe to assume, I believe, that he is having a sexual relationship, it's called sexual morality, with his stepmom. Otherwise, Paul most likely would have said he has a relationship with his mom. But he, he's very specific. It's his father's wife. So this is his stepmom. This would be something very similar to uh, Reuben and Bilhah that we studied in the book of Genesis recently. This is what the book of Leviticus will call incest. And you notice, thirdly, that according to verse 1, he has her, not he had her. In other words, this is not a one-time act followed by mourning and repentance. Uh, this is not a man struggling to overcome sin. This is a man who is in ongoing, defiant, and public sin. And I think that's the key. I think that we have to zero in on this. This is not someone struggling with sin. This is someone saying, I'm going to do this, and I don't care what the rest of you say, and I don't care what the Bible says. This is what I'm giving myself to. It is ongoing and defiant sin. I know of a church, uh, a local church, actually, uh, that, that had two people in the church, both in sexual immorality. Uh, both, both were exposed in their sexual immorality. The church disciplined the man, and the church gathered around the woman, who happened to be pregnant, and prayed over her and pledged to care for her through, during her trial. You say, well, what's the difference? Well, the woman repented, the man was unwilling. So that, I want to be clear here, even as we talk about church discipline. We all Christians, we all sin. That is the Christian life, isn't it? Sin, repent, then repeat, right? You've lived that. I've lived that. We are, it's going to happen again, right? You're going to sin this week, and then I hope and trust you'll repent, and then it's going to happen again. So we're not talking about the, the occasional sin, the struggle with sin, the battle against sin. Uh, discipline comes not when we sin, but when someone refuses to repent. He has his father's wife. And so this man who is in unrepentant sin, and, and, and therefore we, we imagine that Paul would call for this man to repent. But it's very interesting that Paul doesn't. Paul never addresses the man. Paul doesn't even rebuke the man. He never talks to the man. Instead, the whole chapter is directed to the church. Look in verse 2. And you, you, that's second person plural, you all, you church, are what? Are arrogant. That's interesting, isn't it? That the, the church is arrogant. They're arrogant because they're not doing anything. Perhaps they think that this is this man's business, right? That's his issue. I'll take care of myself, and you take care of yourself, and that's how we'll manage this. Of course, we'll, you know, when we're, we have physical needs, we'll help each other. But spiritual needs, sin, no, that's up to the individual to take care of. Or so we sometimes think. But what we're learning here from this passage is that's not what the church is supposed to be. That God is, listen, God is holding the church accountable for the holiness or the lack thereof, of this member of the church. This man has sinned. Of course, it's his responsibility. But the members of the church share responsibility. That holiness is in many ways a community project. That's why God commands us to be gathered together within a local body. So that we can care for each other spiritually. Now that, that might be different in how you think about the local church. Right? That might be a different way to think about your faith, that you might think, no, it's me and Jesus, and I'm here for, you know, my little kind of boost today, and I'll go out the rest of my week, and, but I don't have any connections here in this church. Well, that is not what the Bible speaks about the church. That's not how it's presented to us at all. That, that, that the, the church is given to us, and this, I think, is clearly implied from this passage, that the church is to protect one another and help one another in sin. We are to help each other pursue Christ. We are, as you will, will see, disciplined when we start to wonder. You, in other words, Christian, listen, I don't care how long you've been following Jesus, you need people in your life who love you enough to tell you the truth. They need to know you and speak truth to you. Because if I'm walking towards a cliff and you see me and think, well, that looks foolish, but who am I to tell him not to walk off a cliff? I'll tell, you, I'll tell you, you don't love me very well. 
If you see you can make a ruin of my life, a ruin of my family, a ruin of my marriage, a ruin of, of, of my fatherhood, and you just let me go because you think, well, who am I to say anything? Well, but my brothers and sisters, that's not what we, how we are to live. We are to live in opposite of, what, of, of Cain's little saying. We indeed are our brother's keepers. And the Bible tells us this over and over and over again. I, I remember about 30 years ago when I was living in sin and defiant, unrepentant sin, my first couple years in my Christian faith, and I had a friend who loved me well enough to write me a letter and lay it out for me. The scripture, the sin, calling for repentance. And I'll, I'll tell you, he put our friendship on the line in doing so. And I, I, I can almost guarantee I would not be a pastor today if that man did not write that letter for me. Right? This is the type of relationships that we need in the church. This is why when we covenant together to become a member, we covenant we will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. So I wonder, Christian, do you know of a professed Christian living in sin, ongoing, unrepentant, defiant sin? Have you said anything to them? Have you come to her in love? Will you love them enough? To tell them the truth in humility and in gentleness, even when it's hard and messy and difficult. They're not doing this for this man. They're doing nothing for him. And, and as if that were bad enough, they seem to be proud about their inactivity. He says there in verse 2, you are arrogant. In verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. They seem to even be boasting in this situation. Now, we're not sure what they're boasting about, what they're proud about. But I, I wonder if they're boasting that they've welcomed such a sinful man as a member of their church. Look, we are, we're, we're open-minded here. We've got open doors and we have open hearts and everything's open and kind of just do whatever you want. And look at us, aren't we very tolerant? And after all, these are two consenting adults. They've got to be able to do whatever they want to do. And who are we to judge and all the rest? And so here they come in, um, a man and his father's wife, and they hold hands together and they sit down in the pew and they take communion together. And, uh, and, and we just think, well, God is a God of love after all, and God does and judge anyone and God just wants us to be happy and all the rest and all these silly ideas that don't come from the Bible that we have and, 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 and when we begin to think like this we actually in today's, today's mind that sounds very humble doesn't it it sounds humble to to not judge people toleration seems to be the mark of humility today that, that intolerance is a vice Right? If, if the church does discipline, well, that's prideful, isn't it? That's who do you think you are? That's holier than thou. And yet, notice, God says, no, no. The, to tolerate unrepentant sin is not humility. It's actually arrogance. I find that fascinating. It's actually pride. Humility does not tolerate evil. Pride does. And so when someone says, if you love me, you would accept me just the way I am, we, we would say, no, I love you, and therefore I want to tell you the truth, and I want to help you. According to Scripture, it's arrogant to treat sin as if it's no big deal, for it is a big deal, and it ought to fill, our, fill us with grief. For you read on in verse 2, and he says, ought you not rather mourn? Shouldn't, shouldn't you be heartbroken? Sin in the lives of others should make us mourn. We shouldn't excuse it. We shouldn't explain it away. We shouldn't embrace it and celebrate it and throw a prayer for it and all the rest. We should... We should mourn for it. And they're not mourning because they don't think sin is really bad. If you did, you would act. You would discipline. Which leads us to the process of church discipline. So what, what, are, what are we to do? What are they to do? Well, read on in verse 2. He says, let him who has done this be removed from you. So we, you remove him. Why? Why would you remove him from the church? Well, you, you do so because you can no longer affirm that this man is a Christian. Listen, when, when someone is baptized and joins the church, it's not just the individual who's testifying that I believe in Christ, I've given my life to him. The church who is doing the baptism is affirming that. We also believe that you are a follower of Christ. We, the people of God, affirm and believe that you have surrendered your life to God in faith. And Jesus actually grants the local church this authority. If you want to look at the other passage, do some homework, Matthew 18, where the church, the local church, is given the keys to the kingdom of God uh, from Jesus to bring people into the church. And then when the man is living in sin or the woman's living in sin and has no desire to repent, the church at this point can no longer affirm that they are a follower of Jesus. 
I mean, we could, we could look at a number of scriptures, but 1 John, for instance, chapter 2 says, if you say, I know him and do not keep his commandments, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. So this man now, at this point, is showing no evidence that he is following Jesus, and therefore he should be removed from the people of God. Now that removal that we're instructed in verse 2 is the final stage. Now, well, this is very important, I think. This is not what we just jumped to, right? This is only after weeks and weeks and maybe months, maybe even longer, trying to bring him into repentance. Paul says in Galatians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But this is after this person has rejected the church's attempts, according to Matthew 18, as Jesus lays out, then we are to put him out of the church. In other words, we, we as God's church no longer can recognize you as a Christian. Like Jesus said, we are to treat them as what? A pagan or a tax collector. Now the question is, well, okay, if you remove them from membership of the church, do you still have a relationship with them? And I think you do, but I think it's different. Notice verse 11. Let me just jump down here for a moment. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Notice, by the way, uh, here's a list of sins. So this is not just about sexual morality. I trust this list is not exhaustive either. But this is, we discipline for more than just sexual sin. But you notice he says there, don't associate with him. And at the end he says, don't even eat with them. What does he mean by that? Don't eat with them. Well, there's some debate on that. At the very least, it means we should not serve him communion. Communion is for the family of God. And so he can't enjoy the benefits of the family of God. So we withhold the Lord's Supper from him. But perhaps it means more than that. Perhaps it means that uh, just to eat a meal with him. Perhaps what Paul is saying is that we don't casually spend time with him like everything is okay. And you actually see this taught in a number of passages. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Titus chapter 3, and 2 Timothy chapter 3 all teach us this. But I want to be clear, even the don't associate with him, don't eat with him, it's not a shunning. It's not a cold shoulder. In fact, we would welcome this individual in our church services. We want non-believers coming here during our church services, don't we? What better place for a non-believer to be than, than around the people of God, worshiping God, sitting under the, the teaching of God, right? And so we, we, he is, he's not to be shunned. We're not, we're, we, we could talk to him, but we're not to act as if everything is okay. And so Paul here says that, that we are to remove him. Or uh, verse 13, he says something very similar, somewhat stu stunning, isn't it? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. He's actually quoting Deuteronomy 17 here. When sinners were cut off from, from Israel, someone living in sin in Israel was put out of Israel. And of course, Israel is fulfilled now. The fulfillment of Israel is found in the New Testament church. And now these truths apply to the New Testament church. So purge him, we're told. Remove him. Don't eat with him. And, and notice, I want you to notice that it, the church does this. It's one of the reasons why we're Baptists and, and believe in a congregation's authority. This is not a matter for individuals. This is not a matter for elders. This is a matter for church. Look in verse 3. Though I'm absent in the body, I'm present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Okay, so Paul says, as an apostle, I've pronounced judgment. Now you do the same. Verse 4. Listen, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus... And my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. Now, I, I, find that, I find that fascinating. He says, when you gather, when you assemble as a church, so this is not done privately, this is not done by the pastors or the elders, the entire church, you do it, he says, you see that? In the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I just find that stunning. I, don't, I, don't, I wonder if you think in those terms, like when we assemble together, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ is with us. I mean, I find that fascinating. That's not just something we're just killing an hour and a half on Sunday morning. Something wonderful and incredible is taking place here. And he says that you do this in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus taught, once again, in that parallel passage in Matthew 18. Right? Uh, he says, I'm, Jesus says, when you, when you remove someone from the church, I'm going to be with you when you do that. That's Matthew 18, verse 20. Sometimes we use that verse um, out of context. You know that verse. When two or three are gathered in my name, there I am present with you. We use that as like the low Bible study turnout verse, right? Right? So you plan a Bible study, you cook for 20 people, and three people show up, right? And it's super awkward, and you're texting people, and you're looking out the window. Is that somebody? No, that's a neighbor, right? And like 20 minutes later, you said, well, I guess we should get started. And then what is someone going to do? They're going to quote Matthew 18, 20. Well, you know, when two or three people are gathered together in his name, there he is with us also. 
And I, I, I think he's there. But that has nothing to do with that verse. The verse is in the context of church discipline. And Jesus is saying, when you remove someone from the church, even if the church is tiny, even if there's only two or three of you, I am there authorizing you to do this work. This is what Paul's saying. You're doing it in the power of the Lord Jesus. And what are we to do? Well, perhaps the most stunning verse here is verse 5, isn't it? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Um, so what Paul's saying, when you remove him, you are handing him over to Satan. So in Paul's mind, we'll see this in the last paragraph of this chapter, there, there are two realms in this world. There's in the church where you live in a community where you're supported and loved and encouraged and served and you serve and, and you receive the teaching of the word of God and you're ministered to by the Holy Spirit as he gifts people in the church to build up the church. And then there's outside the church where, where Jesus says the world, that's where the devil rules. That's where Satan rules. And so Paul is saying you take the man from the family of faith and you put him out in the world and you hand him over to the place of Satan's control. It reminds me of Lot who left the believing community of Abraham's family and his tribe and went on into Sodom there. And, and we saw, of course, all that would happen to Lot. Something, in other words, what, what the Bible is teaching us here in verse 5, that there is something troubling. Listen to me, Christian. There is something dangerous to be away from the local church. So how foolish is it, therefore, that so many Christians do it willingly? Right? Well, I don't, what do I only need the church? How foolish and dangerous. Well, you, you watch the nature shows, right? What happens when the zebra gets away from the herd? Right? Nothing good, typically. Right? I wonder, is this how you think of the local church? We have such a low view of the church today, I think. To be removed from the church, we think, well, that's no big deal. Who cares? Uh, we minimize what it means to be a member of a church. It's like an option for us. And I just wanted to let you know that the New Testament has no understanding. You could read it. I've read it many times as you have. You won't find a, a, a single exhortation for a Christian to exist outside the local church. Therefore, uh, I think you should join. Uh, I think you should join a church that preaches the gospel. Right? And when you join, you're not subscribing to a gym. It's not a magazine subscription. It's more like a marriage where you love and sacrifice and give, where we regularly gather. You should gather on Sunday mornings, not simply out of your commitment to God, though you should. You should gather on Sunday mornings out of your commitment to your brothers and sisters sitting next to you, who you have entered into a covenant. In fact, I'll take one step further. I think you should, there should be more debate in your mind on Monday morning, whether you should go to work or not, than on Sunday morning, whether you should go to church or not. Because you've covenanted, if you're a member of the church, you have covenanted with us. You haven't covenanted with your company, you have a contract with them. So wake up on Monday, tomorrow, and say, I don't know, should I go to work? Am I feeling up for it? I don't know. You have that decision. But God help us, if that's how we're considering actually gathering together with God's people in order to worship him. All right, how we, how we doing, okay? All right, okay. I'm preaching to myself as much as I am to anyone, I hope. Well, that leads us to the purpose of just, why do we do this, okay? Because so far, none of this sounds good, right? Um, there are some very good reasons to do it. This, this is a mess. This is difficult. Um, people take sides. I've received letters from lawyers saying, we're going to sue you and take everything from you, right? I don't like those letters. I'd rather not receive them. This sounds difficult, What's, why would we do this? What's the goal Paul gives us for? Four goals. One, for the sinner's salvation. So look again at verse 5. Let's flush this out a little bit. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So you hand him over to Satan, but in hopes so that. That's a purpose clause. We want something to happen. What? We want him to be saved. We want him to return. Paul would do something similar in 1 Timothy 1 and 10. Uh, uh, Chapter 1, verse 10, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. So something very similar happening here. And I think what Paul is saying is when we do this, there are painful consequences being uh, removed from the church. Those painful consequences hopefully will wake the person up. They will repent. 
and return to the church. They, in fact, might even receive redemption and be saved, right? This is why parents discipline children, right? They want our children to experience the painful consequences of sin. I want you to associate this sin with painful consequences in order that you might repent. Now, he says, do this for the destruction of the flesh. We're not sure what he means by that. There are three main arguments. One is, uh, some have suggested that he hand him over Satan so that Satan would kill him. And I, I don't think that's warranted in this chapter at all. This, this, is ne- this phrase is never used for death in the Bible. And uh, we'll also note, you might be happy to hear, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, they do discipline the man, and he does repent, and he does return to the church. You can read that in Paul's uh, sequel to this letter. It might mean the destruction of the flesh for physical suffering, kind of like how Job was handed over to Satan uh, and suffered. I'm not so sure. Destruction, the word destruction seems very severe to me to talk about some kind of physical suffering. I think probably the best is the flesh is a reference to our sinful tendencies. In fact, he even talks about the spirit here. There's a contrast between the spirit and the flesh, isn't it? And so you might might think of yourself as like a walled city, right? I'm a city that's protected by a wall, but you have a traitor inside the city. It's called the flesh. And what the the traitor does, he wakes up in the middle of the night and he opens the door and he lets all the enemies in. And therefore, the Bible is constantly exhorting us over and over and over again to kill the flesh, fight against the flesh, put it to death, right? This is an enemy within that we have to constantly fight, uh, fight against. Well, this man very clearly is no longer fighting against the flesh. He has totally given himself over to the flesh. He has made peace with the flesh. And so Paul says, send him out into the world in order that he might experience the painful consequences of that. And hopefully, like the prodigal son, he'll wake up one day in the pigsty after he's given himself over to the flesh and come to himself and desire to repent and to come back. In fact, I I know many people, I'm sure you do, if you've been following Christ, who have experienced this. They have given themselves over to sin, experienced the misery of it, and have returned once they've experienced the consequences of it. And so, in other words, when we say to a brother and sister, we come to this point, we say to them, we don't want to do this. We've tried and tried and tried to bring you to repentance, but we don't know what else to do. And so with sadness in our heart, we are putting you outside the church, showing that you do not belong to the people of God with your current conduct, but our hope is that you will return to us. We would celebrate the day of your repentance when you come back. So we're ultimately doing this for their good. It's not good to let them continue in sin. It's not good for them to think it's okay. We do this out of love for them. So we do it for the sinner's salvation. Secondly, we do it for the church's purity. No, verse six, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. So you know that yeast or leaven is, has become a symbol for sin in the Bible. Um, and it is so because you put a little yeast or leaven in, in the bread and it spreads throughout. It spreads quickly. It spreads pervasively. And because it spreads, it became an image for sin because sin spreads quickly too. And so what Paul is saying here is that if the sin isn't addressed, soon the whole church is going to be infected by it. And we, we know this. I mean, parents, once again, parents, you know this. You're very interested in who your kids' friends are. Right? Why? Because sin spreads. Uh, it, it, it moves on into other people's life. And you can imagine someone else in this church struggling with sexual temptation, trying to battle those temptations. But here's this guy sitting with his stepmom, and everybody's just acting like it's okay. And maybe he thinks, well, maybe my sin isn't that big of a deal either. Right? The lack of action sends a message, doesn't it? That it becomes acceptable. And sin spreads. Sin is, what the Bible's telling us, sin is serious as its impact upon the body of Christ. It's like cancer in the body. It starts out small, but if it allows to remain, it it metastasizes and it it spreads and it destroys. And church discipline is the chemotherapy that comes to get rid of the cancer in the body. Uh, Therefore, even if the man never repents, good is still being done through church discipline because the church is being protected. And, and I don't know why I keep going to parenting examples, but I think, I think it might be helpful that if you imagine that you have an older child in your home who's making some really bad decisions, and they're into drugs, and they're stealing from you, and they're bringing all sorts of people into your home that you're not excited to have in your home. You're heartbroken, of course, for this child. You're worried about this child. 
But aren't you also concerned for the smaller children in your home? And you try and try to get him to change, but he won't listen to you. And finally, with sadness, what do you say to your older son or daughter? You tell them that they have to move out. You haven't given up on them, but you need to protect your other children. And I don't think, none of this is unloving. Enabling their sin and putting other people in harm's way, that's unloving. So we do it for the church's purity. Thirdly, we do it for Jesus' honor. I mean, read once again verse 7. He says, uh, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Okay? Uh, the, the pa- you notice he's talking about leaven and he brings up the idea of the Passover. Um, and, uh, Craig read for us the Feast of the Unleavened Bread passage this morning from Exodus 12. And they would remove leaven from the house. right? And uh, in fact, the father would hide a little bit of leaven somewhere in the house, and the kids would go searching for it with a feather. And they would find it, and they would sweep it out of the house. And for a whole week, they would eat unleavened bread. This uh, Leaven makes bread rise. This would be, uh, we're about to have unleavened bread. This would be what, what they call matzah bread. Um, and so it's not bread that is crackers, right? And so they would get rid of the leaven in the house, and then they would start a whole week-long festival called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. But do you understand that the Festival of Unleavened Bread comes immediately after what festival? It's Passover. So Passover starts, and then Passover is one day, and then you have a week of unleavened bread. Now let me just put these together, see if you can't follow me. Okay. The, in the Passover, the lamb, spotless lamb is slain. You put the blood over the doorpost, and therefore God's wrath passes over you. Because you're hiding under the substitutionary sacrifice of the spotless lamb of God. And once the lamb of God passes over you, then you spend the next week eating unleavened bread as a picture of your transformed lives. So redemption comes through the sacrifice of the substitute, which leads to this pure life. Notice when Paul, in thinking about these things, Paul says that Jesus is what? He's our Passover lamb. He has been sacrificed. You see the end of verse 7? You really are unleavened. Right? He's made you unleavened. Therefore, right, so because Jesus has done this, because Jesus has died to save us, because Jesus has made us unleavened and credited us his righteousness, how should we live? Well, look in verse 8. Let us therefore, because Christ is our Passover lamb, therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? Because Jesus has died, we can't just keep going on living in sin, in other words. Turning a blind eye to sin, in other words. We, we, we trample upon his blood, we dishonor his death, we hammer nails into his hands over and over and over again. When we just give ourselves blatantly to the sin and think nothing of it. So thinking that Christ has died for us should create in us a longing that we would honor that death by living the lives that he died to create. Titus 2 tells us Christ gave himself for us that he might purify for himself a people, right? We want to be the, that, kind of, the, that kind of church, that kind of people. So we do this for, for his salvation, for the church's purity, for Jesus' honor. And lastly, we do, we do discipline for our neighbor's good. You see, the Bible tells us we're to be different from the world. Right? Look in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So we learn here from this verse that Paul had written a previous letter. So 1 Corinthians isn't actually the first letter to the Corinthian church. We don't have that letter. We, don't, we, we never had a copy of it. It's been gone. But he, we, he tells us something about the letter. In that letter, he told them not to associate with sexually immoral people. But now in this letter, he has to clarify. And he says, no, you guys are confused. I wasn't saying don't associate with sexual moral people in the world. If you did that, you would have to leave the world. Right? I wasn't talking about the world at all. Right? Uh, I was actually talking about the church in verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone, here's the key, who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So he's not, in other words, he's not forbidding 
friendship with sinners. He's not forbidding contact with immoral people. We're not to withdraw into our monastic little huddles. We're not just to kind of circle the wagons and stay away from. We are to be friends with people living in immorality. We are to love them. We are to become part of their lives. We are to be salt and light in our workplaces and our neighborhoods and our schools and in our, our sports teams and all the rest. But not, he says, that can't happen within the church. And so he gives us the principle here in verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not the, uh, is it not those inside whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, he says. So he says, it's not our job to judge the world in the sense of taking action against the world because of their sinful lives. Right? We don't expect the world to act like Christians. They're not Christians. Right? Our, in other words, our chief concern is not with society. Our chief concern is not with culture. Our chief concern is not with our country. Well, we should be concerned about those things. It's not our chief concern. Our chief concern is within our church. Paul says it's our job to judge those within the church. Verse 13, let God deal with the world. And they're doing the opposite. They're condemning sin outside and tolerating sin inside. And I wonder how often we do that. We look at the world and say, those people are gross. Those people are nasty. Those people are awful. Look at what they're doing. Isn't it awful? Isn't it terrible? Isn't it miserable? But then when there's sin within the church, well, we just kind of, you know, don't even want to do it. It sounds a lot like the Pharisees to me. Looking out there and seeing sin everywhere, but somehow never finding it within us. Of course, the implication is the church is to be different from the world. Right? This only works if there's a distinction between the church and the world. So some, some Christians think the opposite. We should become just like the world. I think Paul is very clear that we, we shouldn't. The church is a place where God's holiness is on display, that we want to show the world what God is like. And so there needs to be a clear marker between the world and the church, a line that distinguishes us. Not a wall to, to keep people out, but a line to mark the boundary that we are to be different because Jesus has changed us. The church in Corinth they're different than the world, but they're actually worse than the world. Right? They're tolerating sin even the world doesn't tolerate. Right? And, and the, re the result is Christ's reputation is being harmed. Paul would write similarly in Romans 2. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You Christians, God, God, is, God is being blasphemed because of your behavior. In other words, in doing nothing, this church says this man and saying this man is a Christian. This is what it means to follow God. This is how Jesus impacts your life. The world says, I don't, we don't want anything to do with that. We don't want that. That's why church discipline is vital. It maintains our witness. It gives us an action, accurate picture of who Jesus is. Because after all, before anyone reads your Bible, they're going to read your lives. And we want to say to the world, hey, learn how glorious God is by how passionately we worship him. And learn how loving God is by how we love each other. And learn how seriously God takes sin by how seriously we take it. And we show them a different way to live. We present an alternative. I, I believe in alternative lifestyles. Right? I think we are an eternal, alternative lifestyle church. Right? You want an alternative lifestyle? Right? Don't change your gender. That's mainstream. Everybody's doing that. Right? Right? Stand up for Jesus. That'll be an alternative. Right? Teens? Teenagers? You want to be a rebel? You want to stand out? You want to be different? Countercultural? How about stay a virgin until you're married to a person of the opposite gender? Right? That will freak some people out. Okay? <laughs> They'll be like, what in the world is going on? No. Pay your bills on time? Mow your lawn? Right? That will, that will, people will wonder what, what's happening there. Stay married? That's an alternative, don't you think? Right? You'll be a total rebel. Read your Bible in public, right? People think that person's a freak. I mean, you want let's we all are, are the alternative. Call sin a sin, right? And be accountable to one another in humility and love and gentleness. That's oh, that's an alternative. That will give the world something to see. You see, for the sake of the God whom we love. And for the sake of our community who needs an example of righteousness. And for the sake of one another. And for the sake of the unrepentant sinner. God says to us, even though it's difficult and hard, slow and messy. We need to practice church discipline. In fact, the best way to start is to 
do it in our own lives. And so we're about to take the Lord's Supper. I just want to turn your attention to prepare for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11. Turn over there, just a couple of chapters. 1 Corinthians 11, we find perhaps the, the most helpful biblical teaching on the Lord's Supper. And Paul tells us that we should examine our own lives prior to eating this meal. For you look in verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Who therefore ever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of con uh, concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. I wonder in light of this passage, can I just ask you one question? We're done in a moment. We talked about disciplining others. Christian, are you living in unrepentant sin? Any area in your life where you say, I don't care what God says, I'm just going to do it. Maybe, maybe you are because, because you're not a Christian and that you've never received Christ as your Savior. I tell you that Jesus came, even as we talked about the Passover lamb, he came to live a perfect life. He's the son of God who died upon the cross in your place to pay for your sin and then rose three days later physically and bodily from the grave in order to show that he has made victory over death. And now he declares as the crucified Savior and the resurrected Lord, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So I, I would invite you non-Christian today to turn your life over to the only Savior that I know of, Jesus Christ by faith. That you be saved not by your goodness, but simply by trusting in Christ's goodness and his work for you. For others of you, I've, I've been praying this week, praying for me as well, that God would use this very difficult passage to draw you to him, give you a hatred for sin, and desperation perhaps to seek help. And I wonder if there might be one or two here today that in light of these truths, you, God is calling you to return to him, to repent of your sin, to forsake it and to come home to him. And so let me just give you a moment in silent prayer and reflection as we examine our own lives, as we prepare for this supper meal. Shall we pray together? Father, we ask that we would not only be the Christians that Christ has died to make, but that we would be the church that he has died to create. That Jesus has come and died, not simply that he might have people, but that he might have a people, people redeemed by him gathered together, living lives of holiness, as we love and support one another. Will you help us to do that as a church? We find this very difficult. This is, requires abundant wisdom. And yet we want to be obedient. So even now as we take this Lord's Supper, we pray that we would not only commune with you as individuals, but that we would commune with one another as we fellowship with you through this meal. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.